Welcome to the channel of Anna Purdue. Look for the link below the podcast and make sure to upload the podcast so you can multitask while hearing the message. And you can also look for the link and um, once you open it up, you can scroll over and select your favorite platform, Apple, Spotify, or Google, and just look for the channel Anna Purdue. A huge shout out to James R., Michelle V., Mark Z., Leonard L., Dave O., Carolyn C., Darren J., Angela E., Karen C., Daniel B., Jolie R., and Kristen S. for your donations to the channel this month. And if you are interested in helping out this channel, you can do so by clicking the donation link found on my website at annapurdue.com. And another way to support this channel is by checking out this offer from my latest sponsor. The government keeps telling us inflation is under control, or that it's just temporary. But what do you think? Exactly. This is just inflation by the back door. Noble Gold is ahead of the game here. They know that with a precious metal IRA under your belt, you'll hedge these rising prices so you can retire without worrying about it. You'll keep up with the inflation the folks in Washington are trying to hide. And this month, as a thank you, and to kickstart this precious metal project, Noble Gold is giving away a free 5-ounce solid silver America the Beautiful Bullion Cube with every qualifying IRA or 401k rollover. Take advantage of this amazing investment opportunity by visiting noblegoldinvestments.com or you can call us at 877-646-5347. That's 877-646-5347. This report is from the Centers for Disease Control regarding the Tuskegee experiment in the 1900s. In 1932, the United States Public Health Service, working with the Tuskegee Institute, began a study to record the natural history of syphilis. It was originally called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male, now referred to as the USPHS Syphilis Study at Tuskegee. The study initially involved 600 black men, 399 with syphilis, and 201 who did not have the disease. Participants' informed consent was not collected, so they didn't let them know what they were doing. This is awful. Researchers told the men they were being treated for bad blood, a local term used to describe several ailments, including syphilis, anemia, and fatigue. By 1943, penicillin was the treatment of choice for syphilis and becoming widely available, but the participants in the study were not even offered the treatment. In 1972, an Associated Press story about the study was published, and as a result, the Assistant Secretary for Health and Scientific Affairs appointed an ad hoc advisory panel to review the study. The advisory panel concluded that the study was ethically unjustified. That is, the results were disproportionately meager compared with known risk to human subjects involved. They didn't even take in the humanitarian part. Oh, it's sickening. In October 1972, the panel advised stopping the study. A month later, the Assistant Secretary for Health and Scientific Affairs announced the end of the study. In March 1973, the panel also advised the Secretary of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare 
now known as the Department of Health and Human Services, to instruct the United States Public Health Service to provide all necessary medical care for the survivors of the study. The Tuskegee Health Benefit Program was established to provide these services. In 1975, participants, wives, widows, and children were added to the program. In 1995, the program was expanded to include health as well as medical benefits. The last study participant died in January of 2004, and the last widow receiving the Tuskegee Health Benefit Program benefits died in January of 2009. Participants' children continue to receive medical and health benefits. And later, going back to 1973, a class action lawsuit was, was filed on behalf of the study participants and their families, resulting in a $10 million out-of-court settlement in 1974. The Tuskegee Education Center tells us the study took place in Macon County, Alabama, the county seat of Tuskegee, referred to as the Black Belt because of its rich soil and vast number of black sharecroppers who were the economic backbone of the region. The research itself took place on the campus of Tuskegee Institute. The intent of the study was to record the natural history of syphilis in blacks. The study was called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. When the study was initiated, there were no proven treatments for the disease. A total of 600 men were enrolled. And, I mean... Oh, and it's terrible because they didn't even let them know what they were doing. They were killing these men and their families. Most of the men, they were poor and they were illiterate sharecroppers from the county. And the men were offered what most Negroes at that time could only dream of in terms of medical care and survivor's insurance. They were enticed and enrolled in the study with incentives like um, medical exams and rides back and forth to the clinics and meals on examination days and with free treatment for minor ailments and guarantees that provisions would be made after their deaths in terms of burial stipends paid to their survivors. There were no proven treatments for syphilis. And they knew it. These scientists knew it when this study began. When penicillin became the standard treatment for the disease in 1947, the medicine was withheld as a part of the treatment for both the experimental group and control group. They withheld the treatment. On July 25, 1972, Jean Heller of the Associated Press broke the story that appeared simultaneously both in New York and Washington that there had been a 40-year non-therapeutic experiment called a study on the effects of untreated syphilis on black men in the rural South. That was, of course, back at the day when the press was still honest. Between the start of the study in 1932 and 1947, the date when penicillin was determined as a cure for the disease, dozens of men had died and their wives, children, and untold number of others had been infected. This set into motion international public outcry and a series of actions initiated by U.S. federal agencies. 
The Assistant Secretary for Health and Scientific Affairs appointed an ad hoc advisory panel. And there were nine members on this panel. And they included people from fields of health administration, medicine, law, religion, education, and other things like that to review the study. While the panel concluded that the men participated in the study freely, agreeing to the examinations and treatments, there was evidence that scientific research protocol routinely applied to human subjects was either ignored or deeply flawed to ensure the safety and well-being of the men involved. These scientists were as wicked as they are today. Specifically, I'm telling you, my mother used to always warn me about scientists. She's right. They really are evil people. Specifically, the men were never told about or offered the research procedure called informed consent. So really, the men did not do this willingly. I guarantee if they knew what these horrible people were up to, they would have never agreed to it. The researchers, they had not informed the men of the actual name of the study, which the name of, they didn't even tell them the name of the study, which the study was Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Man, Male. They didn't tell them its purpose, the potential consequences of the treatment, or non-treatment that they were going to get during the study or not get. The men never knew of the debilitating and life-threatening consequences of the treatments they were to receive, the impact on their wives, girlfriends, and children they may have conceived once involved in the research. The panel also concluded that there were no choices given to the participants to quit the study when penicillin became available as a treatment and cure for syphilis. This experiment seems eerily familiar with the live exercise experiment we are seeing today in real time, isn't it? Where is the ad hoc advisory panel today, I wonder? Reviewing the results of the research, the panel concluded that the study was ethically unjustified. I would say so. Yet, they are conducting a deadly, ethically unjustified study on all peoples this very day worldwide. Wouldn't you agree? The panel articulated all of the above findings in October of 1972, and then one month later, the Assistant Secretary for Health and Scientific Affairs officially declared the end of the Tuskegee study. Class action suit in the summer of 1973. Attorney Fred Gray filed this on behalf of the men in the study, their wives, children, and families. It ended a settlement giving more than $9 million dollars. And in the beginning of the 20th century, the U.S. Public Health Service was entrusted with this responsibility to monitor and identify trends in health of citizenry and develop interventions to treat disease and ailments and negative trends adversely impacting the health and wellness of Americans. So it was organized into sections and divisions, including one devoted to venereal disease, all sections of the Public Health Service conducted scientific research involving human beings. The research standards were, for their times, adequate. 
by comparison to today's standards, dramatically different and influenced by the professional and personal biases of the people leading the U.S. Public Health Service. Well, I may have to differ with them on this one because it seems like they've thrown everything out the window and they've gone right back to where they were back in the turn of the century. But back then, scientists believed that few people outside of the scientific community could comprehend the complexities of research from the nature of the scientific experiments to the consent involved in becoming a research subject. Hmm. Um, I think they still feel this way. These sentiments were particularly true about the poor and uneducated black community. The U.S. Public Health Service began working with Tuskegee Institute all the way back to 1932 to study hundreds of black men with syphilis from Macon County, Alabama. As part of the class action suit settlement, the U.S. government promised to provide a range of free services to the survivors of the study, their wives, widows, and children and all living participants became immediately entitled to free medical and burial services. Oh, my. (laughs) That should have been a red flag right there, free burial services. These services were provided by the Tuskegee Health Benefit Program, which was and continues to be administered by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in their National Center for HIV, STD, and TB Prevention. In February of 1994, at the Claude Moore Health Sciences Library in Charlottesville, Virginia, a symposium was held entitled, Doing Bad in the Name of Good, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study and its Legacy. Resulting from this gathering was the creation of the Tuskegee Syphilis Study Legacy Committee, which met for the first time in January 18th and 19th of 1996. The committee had two goals, to persuade President Clinton at the time to apologize on behalf of the government for the atrocities of the study and two, to develop a strategy to address the damages of the study to the psyche of uh, African Americans and others about the ethical behavior of government-led research, rebuilding the reputation of Tuskegee through public education about the study, developing a clearinghouse on the ethics of scientific research and scholarship, and assembling training programs for health care providers. After intensive discussions, the committee's final report in May of 1996 urged President Clinton to apologize for the emotional, medical, research, and psychological damage of the study. On May 16th, at a White House ceremony attended by the men, members of the Legacy Committee and others representing the medical and research communities, the apology was finally delivered to the surviving participants of the study and families of the deceased. To really understand the heinous nature of the Tuskegee experiment requires some social context, a lot of history, and a realization of just how many times government agencies were given a chance to stop this human experimentation but didn't. This article from McGill Office for Science and Society tells that in 1865, the ratification of the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution formally ended enslavement of black Americans. But, 
at the early 20th century, the cultural and medical landscape of the United States was still built upon and inundated with racist concepts. Social Darwinism was rising predicated on the survival of the fittest and scientific racism. A pseudo-scientific practice of using science to reinforce racial biases was common. Rather than simply observing and documenting the natural progression of syphilis in the community as had been planned, the researchers intervened. First, by telling the participants that they were being treated a lie and then again by preventing their participants from seeking treatment that could have saved their lives. The Henderson Act was passed in 1943 requiring tests and treatments for venereal diseases to be publicly funded, and by 1947, penicillin had become the standard treatment for syphilis, prompting the U.S. Public Health Service to open several rapid treatment centers, specifically to treat syphilis with penicillin. All the while, they were actively preventing 399 men from receiving the same treatments. In 1947, the Nuremberg Code was written, and in 1964, the World Health Organization published their Declaration of Helsinki, both aimed to protect humans from experimentation. But despite this, the Centers for Disease Control, which had taken over from the U.S. Public Health Service in controlling the study, actively decided to continue the study as late as 1969. It wasn't until a whistleblower, Peter Buxton, leaked information about the study to the New York Times and the paper published it on the front page on November 16, 1972, that the Tuskegee study finally ended. By this time, only 74 of the test subjects were even still alive. 128 patients had died of syphilis or its complications. 40 of their wives had been infected, and 19 of their children had acquired congenital syphilis. Oh, there is more to this story. University of Missouri-Kansas City Research Services writes that in the late 1950s, thalidomide was approved as a sedative in Europe. It was not approved in the United States by the FDA. The drug was prescribed to control sleep and nausea throughout pregnancy, but it was soon found that taking this drug during pregnancy caused very bad, severe deformities in the fetus. Many patients didn't even know they were taking a drug that was not approved for use by the FDA, nor were they given informed consent. Some 12,000 babies were born with severe deformities due to the thalidomide. In 1964, the World Medical Association established recommendations guiding medical doctors and biomedical research involving human subjects. The Declaration governs international research ethics and defines rules for research combined with clinical care and non-therapeutic research. 
The Declaration of Helsinki was revised in 1975, 1983, 1989, and 1996 and is the basis for good clinical practices used today. Well, clearly this article was written before 2020. Issues addressed in the Declaration of Helsinki include research with humans should be based on the results from laboratory and animal experimentation. Research protocols should be reviewed by an independent committee prior to initiation. Informed consent from research participants is necessary Research should be conducted by medically, scientifically qualified individuals. Risks should not exceed benefits. The National Research Act created the National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research, which was charged to identify the basic ethical principles that should underlie the conduct of biomedical and behavioral research involving human subjects and to develop guidelines which should be followed to assure that such research is conducted in accordance with those principles. The Commission drafted the Belmont Report, a foundational document in for the ethics of human subjects research in the United States. Nazi atrocities in World War II drew attention to the lack of international standards on research with human subjects and led to the formulation of the Nuremberg Code. The the Lidomite disaster led to the adoption of the Kefauver Amendments to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requiring drug manufacturers to prove to the FDA the effectiveness of their products before marketing them. The Declaration of Helsinki is the basis for good clinical practices used today, well, before 2020. The Tuskegee syphilis study is probably the worst case of unethical human subjects research in the history of the United States. The National Research Act codified the requirement that human subjects in research must be protected and set the stage for the issuance of the Belmont Report. The Belmont Report established three basic ethical principles in respect for others, but there's quite a few other details in this, and we'll go over it. Uh, the, The beneficence and justice, that's one. This is the cornerstone for regulations involving human subjects and carrying out its charge. The National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research prepared the Belmont Report in 1979. The Belmont Report attempts to summarize the basic ethical principles identified by the Commission in the course of its deliberations. The report is a statement of basic ethical principles and guidelines that should exist in resolving the ethical problems that surround the conduct of research with human subjects. These basic ethical principles and their corresponding applications are Principle, respect for persons. In other words, individuals should be treated as autonomous agents. Persons with diminished autonomy are entitled to protection. Beneficence, human subjects should not be harmed. Research should maximize possible benefits and minimize possible harms. 
justice. The benefits and risk of research must be distributed fairly with informed consent so that the subjects, to the degree that they are capable, are given the opportunity to choose which they shall and shall not happen to them. The consent process must include information, comprehensive comprehension, and voluntariness. The nature and scope of risk and benefits must be assessed in a systematic manner. There must be fair procedures and outcomes in the selection of research subjects. In the final call blog, we learned Dr. Mingle had many medical aiders and abettors. He wasn't alone in this. When their crimes became known to the world, American officials created a court in Nuremberg in 1946 where they put 23 of the Nazi doctors on trial. But at their trial, the defendants did something that shocked the world and may have led to seven of them actually being acquitted. In their defense, they introduced into evidence an article in the June 4, 1945 issue of Life magazine, which reported on a malaria experiment in America. It was performed on 432 male prisoners at Stateville Penitentiary in Illinois. Doctors there deliberately had prisoners bitten by malaria-infected mosquitoes and then treated them with high doses of a toxic serum to observe the side effects. Ironically, had these defendants known of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment occurring in Alabama at the very same time, they would have in all likelihood made it known to the world and their own exposure that possibly could have ended that notorious American medical atrocity. But Tuskegee's black men and their families would suffer another 26 years before those U.S. government doctors were forced to shut the study down in 1972, and none of those criminal scientists ever went on trial. The fact is that American doctors were no better than Dr. Mingle and his cohorts, and in many cases they proved far worse. And the victims of these medical atrocities were black people, Native Americans, Latinos, women, children, and poor whites, all American citizens. The Nuremberg trials led to the establishment of a set of guiding principles for the medical world known as the Nuremberg Code. The code was specifically designed to outlaw the medical atrocities uncovered by the trials. Obviously, one would expect the medical profession to eagerly embrace and enthusiastically enforce the new standards. But the American medical establishment responded to the Nuremberg Code in a peculiar way. They rejected it as a good code for barbarians, but an unnecessary code for ordinary physicians and scientists. Oh my gosh, they think they're so far above us. They claimed it represented unwarranted legalistic restraint on their medical research. And there is good reason for their astonishing rejection of such human code of conduct. 
A year before they publicly prosecuted the Germans, U.S. officials had set up a classified research facility 150 miles from Nuremberg where they had secretly employed 58 German physicians in medical research. Ultimately, several of these war criminals were brought to America among 1,600 of their scientists in a clandestine U.S. program. By 1972, just 26 years after the Nuremberg trials, the pharmaceutical industry in America was doing more than 90% of its experimental testing on prisoners. The benefits of having a controlled, mostly black population were simply irresistible to Americans' own medical profession. And while Germany's doctors were being executed and imprisoned for their crimes, the American doctors reacted by actually refining, enhancing, and increasing the very same inhuman medical atrocities. As one investigative journalist reported, From the 40s through the early 70s, American doctors regularly injected and infected inmates with malaria, typhoid fever, herpes, cancer cells, tuberculosis, ringworm, hepatitis, syphilis, and cholera in repeatedly failed attempts to cure such diseases. Doctors in prisons pulled out prisoners' fingernails and inflicted flash burns to approximate the results of atomic bomb attacks and even conducted various mind control experiments using isolation techniques and high doses of LSD courtesy of the C and the I and the A. The fact is the Tuskegee syphilis experiment was the tip of the iceberg for the wicked American scientist. Their resumes of death and disease before and after the Third Reich would turn Dr. Mingle green with envy. The medical literature of the late 19th and early 20th centuries contained more than 40 reports of experimental infections with gonorrhea and one where it was applied to the eyes of sick children. In 1895, New York City pediatrician Henry Hyman infected with gonorrhea a four-year-old boy whom he called an idiot with chronic epilepsy. In 1950, American doctors working for the U.S. Navy sprayed large quantities of deadly bacteria over the city of San Francisco during a project called Operation Sea Spray. Numerous citizens contracted pneumonia-like illnesses because of this. In 1941, William C. Black inoculated a 12-month-old baby with herpes who was offered as a volunteer. He submitted his research to the Journal of Experimental Medicine. U.S. Army doctors set up blowers atop the predominantly Pruitt Ego housing development in North St. Louis, where they spewed hundreds of pounds of zinc cadmium sulfide in the air. And since then, there have been reports of high cancer rates and premature diseases and deaths to follow. And, you know, this brings me back to wondering, what about that? stuff we see in our sky. What are they spraying on us now? 
They're horrible. They're monsters. In 1945, a year before the Nuremberg trials, American doctors were conducting radiation experiments on unwitting patients. The first known victim was a black man named Eb Cade. He was admitted to a hospital after a car accident, but instead of treating his broken bones, he was injected with plutonium, radioactive fuel for atomic bombs. Oh my gosh, please never take me to a hospital. Just let me die in my bed. In the 1960s, Saul Krugman promised the parents of mentally retarded children that they would be admitted into the highly rated Willowbrook State School in Staten Island if they would consent to vaccinations. He fed live hepatitis virus from others' stool samples to 60 healthy children. All the children fed hepatitis virus became ill, some severely. They were called the most unethical medical experiments ever performed on children in the United States. Doctors of the Sloan Kettering Institute injected at least 396 inmates at Ohio State Prison with live human cancer cells. In 1962, doctors at the Jewish Chronic Disease Hospital in Brooklyn injected live cancer cells into 22 elderly patients who were not informed what was happening to them. When whistleblowers exposed the experiments, the doctor's licenses were revoked for one year. Yet one of them, Chester M. Southam, became president of the American Association for Cancer Research. Between 1951 and 1974, Albert Kligman, a professor of dermatology at the University of Pennsylvania, conducted experiments on inmates at Holmesburg Prison in Philadelphia for at least 33 major pharmaceutical, chemical, and cosmetic companies, including Merck, DuPont, Dow Chemical, and Johnson & Johnson. From 1964 to 1968, the U.S. Army paid Kligman over $300,000 to perform experiments with mind-altering drugs on 320 inmates to determine the minimum effective dose of each drug needed to disable 50% of any given population. Kligman admitted, it was years before the authorities knew what I was, that I was conducting various studies on prisoner volunteers. No one asked me what I was doing. It was a wonderful time. You see how sick these people are? They're just disgusting. The celebrated developer of the polio vaccine, now known to have been contaminated with cancer, Jonas Salk, also conducted alarming human experiments. Salk vaccinated 8,000 patients at two mental institutions in Michigan and then infected them with wild influenza virus made from dried infected mouse tissue. Salk later conducted another medical experiment on some of the 3,400 mentally disabled children at the Watson Home for Crippled Children and the Polk State School near Pittsburgh. In fact, 
These satanic American doctors and the public institutions and private corporations they represent have raised the bar on evil. The trail of dead and deceased American bodies reaches far, far beyond Dr. Mingle, his cohorts, and their chilling legacy. This country's transparently evil forced mandate plot to call its population by 150 million and the world population by 2 to 3 billion may even get it worse. The U.S. government acknowledges that over 12,000, and today I've learned it's gone up to 48,000 people, have been killed here in the United States alone since this little thing that President Trump got pushed that I can't talk about. And people I love have it. So I'm going to lose a lot of people I love because of this. The sick, demented, twisted, horrible thing that they're putting on the world. It hurts my heart. It hurts my heart. It breaks my heart to see so many people lining up for this death experimentation. For these sick scientists and sick doctors. They're not doctors. They're not scientists. They're evil, wicked creatures. Folks, it's time we start exercising our citizens' rights and conduct citizens' arrest on all of these psychopaths. <laughs>